Would you remain standing and recite with me the Shema as it's printed in the bulletin? We will uh, read in Hebrew responsively and then in English recite it together. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Now hear this gospel lesson from the third chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 15 through 17 and 21 through 22. As the people were filled with expectations and questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he was the Messiah, John answered all of them, I baptize you with water, but one is coming, one more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized, And when Jesus also was baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's a scene in the movie, The Blind Side, where a high school age Michael Tui ascends the interior, Michael Orr ascends the interior steps of the Tui home. And when he gets to the home office, at the top of the stairs, he calls out, Mrs. Tui? And Sandra Bullock's character responds, you can call me Leanne. Or you can call me mom, but if you call me Mrs. Tooey, I'm going to miss you because I have to look over my shoulder to see if my mother-in-law is standing there. The right name is important. I can answer to other names. I can answer to a wrong name when I'm in a hurry. This last week, I was in the doctor's office leaving with three children, and the nurse called out to me as I was leaving, Shelly, and I knew who she was talking to, so I turned around to get my last minute instructions, but it wasn't quite right. My toddler has recently taken to calling me Dinah. Sounds a little strange coming from the mouth that should be calling me Mommy. Dinah, he says, and I laugh. But it's weird. (laughs) It's not quite right. You know what I mean? Have you ever been called by the wrong name? It's a bit unsettling, a bit off-putting. 
This may be exactly what's happening in this scripture passage with John the Baptist. The Messiah, the people are saying, and John says, no, that's not me. One who is more powerful than me is coming, but that's not me. This may be what's happening with John the Baptist. He's being called the wrong name. But I can guarantee you that this is not what is happening with Jesus in this passage. Luke has gone to great lengths in the first three chapters of his gospel to make sure that we know Jesus' identity. From the scene of the ascension, of the Annunciation, From the scene of the Annunciation forward, Luke makes sure that we know who it is we're dealing with. When Gabriel comes to Mary, he says, You will bear a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And in Zechariah's prophecy of Jesus, we have these words, By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us. And at his birth, Jesus is called the Messiah. Jesus is called the Lord. When he is presented as a baby at the temple, Luke tells us that he is the Lord's Messiah. And the prophet Anna says of Jesus, he will bring redemption to Jerusalem. As a child, we are told that the favor of God is upon him. And when he is 12 years old, Luke makes sure that we know the temple in Jerusalem is his home, his father's house. In every scene, Luke wants us to know that his witness is of the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God. Oh, we know who we're dealing with. I want to assure you that Luke writes with certainty. There's no doubt in Luke's mind. When you're dealing with Jesus, you're dealing with the Son of God. But there is one wrong name for Jesus. One person not to get him confused with. And in this chapter 3 of Luke, this person is mentioned twice. Once before the scripture passage that we have for this morning and once after the scripture passage that we have for this morning. It's Herod, the ruler of Galilee. He might be called the king of the Jews, but he's nothing like the one who's being introduced to us. Okay, it's logical. I could see how it could happen that we might refer to Jesus, we might title him the king of the Jews. King of the Jews is one way that the first century Jewish people understood the Messiah. That the Messiah would come with worldly power, with military might. That was one expectation that they had for the Messiah. And Herod knew a thing or two about worldly power. Herod, this is Herod Antipas that we're dealing with. He's the son of Herod the Great. He had inherited one-third of his father's kingdom. He was a great builder. He built Sephora in the south, close to Bethlehem. And in northern Israel and Galilee, 
he built Tiberias, a beautiful city. Tiberias had the best of everything, a grand stadium, a beautiful palace, Roman baths. Scripture tells us that when Antipas was interested in his brother's wife, he didn't wait for his brother to die. He married her. And then Scripture tells us, in fact, the Gospel of Luke. Later on in Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us that the Pharisees come to Jesus as he is teaching, and the Pharisees say, Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus' response is, Go tell that fox that I am casting out demons and performing miracles. Ray Vanderland says that the modern equivalent for the title for the name fox is wimp. So Jesus' response is, Go tell that wimp. I'm a little busy right now. King of the Jews. It's just not quite the right name for Jesus. But it's the voice from heaven, isn't it? It's the voice from heaven that gets the name right. The voice from heaven that doesn't call people by the wrong name. The voice from heaven says, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. I wonder if John was surprised by the way that the scene played out. See, John says to the crowd, I'm not him. I'm not the Messiah, but he's coming. He's more powerful than me. He will bring the Holy Spirit and fire. He is going to clean up this place, clear out this place. And then Jesus steps onto the scene. Not with a grand explosion, not in a blaze of glory, but Jesus identifies himself with the people, the people who are facing judgment, the people who are in need of redemption. As the crowds are baptized, Jesus too is baptized. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that this is how God's plan will come to fulfillment Jesus will humbly identify himself with the people. He'll take their place. He'll share in their penitence. He'll die their death. Jesus takes on our identity. And as Jesus takes our identity, we get a true glimpse at our right name. As followers of Jesus, we are beloved. We are child of God. We are pleasing to God. In the book, The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning, in his opening chapter of the book, he writes, God has a single, relentless stance toward us. God loves us. He is the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. False gods, the gods of human manufacturing, despise sinners. But the Father of Jesus, the Father of Jesus loves us all, no matter what we do. It's a simple, but I believe very basic and important truth of our faith. God's stance towards us is relentless. Unconditional love. 
and I have a need, I know that I have a desire for that love. My older two children, my daughters, have recently taught our toddler how to play a new game, hide-and-go-seek. It's a fun game when played in the house, (laughs) exciting game in the house, finding a good hiding place, counting to ten, and then the searching. The toddler's not very good at the game. I have a feeling this is one sport he'll never compete in. The problem is not that he can't hide. He hides. He finds great hiding places. And he stays in those hiding places until the counting ends. But when the counting stops, he jumps out and says, Here I am. That's my need too. That's my desire. Here I am. I want to be found. I want to be noticed. I want to be blessed. I want to be loved. It's a basic truth of my faith that it's part of every Christian scripture that I am loved, that I am found, that I am accepted. A Christian historian writing about the Reformation said that the Reformation was a time when men were simply overcome. They were overwhelmed. He writes, they were staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. We can't help but stumble over it. It's in every page of our scriptures. God's love for us is relentless. I find that living in that place, Living in the place of God's love is a daily challenge. It is a challenge for me to accept that love in my daily routine, in the morning with the children, in the grocery store, as I encounter a cashier at the church, as I encounter people here and at home again in our evening routine, bath time, story time, bedtime. Living out the promise of God's love for me. Knowing who that I am, because I know whose I am. I also know in this promise, there is an important stance for me to take as I face the future. Fred Craddock writes, um, tells a story and writes about an experience that he had in ministry when he went to visit a young woman in his congregation at the hospital. She'd never been in the hospital before, and she was facing surgery, and it was serious surgery. And Craddock says that she was beside herself. She was a mess. And so he prayed with her, And as they finished the prayer, he noticed a stack of magazines and books that she had beside her bed. True love, mirror, and Hollywood today, Craddock says. Now, this was 20 years ago, so let me update that stack of books for you because I'm familiar with the genre. That would be Us Weekly, 
People magazine, the Twilight series. Craddock says, there's not a calorie, there's not a gram of protein in that stack to sustain her for this experience. No wonder she was a wreck. The spiritual diet that's a diet that is available, readily available to all of us, but it doesn't sustain us. It doesn't give us the energy that we need. There's better food available. There are reminders of our blessedness in every page of the Christian scripture. But it's not only written. There are other forms as well. My favorite childhood game was not hide and go seek. But my favorite childhood game was tea party. I don't know that girls play it much anymore. I know my girls don't. And I would set up a table for two uh, with cups and saucers and napkins, tiny little spoons, tiny teapot, a sugar bowl and a creamer. And my favorite person to play tea party with was my grandmother, Granny. We usually played at her house. And I know that there must have been times when she had to put dinner preparations on hold, times when she had to put down a crossword puzzle or her needlepoint, or miss her favorite show, Jeopardy, to play tea party. But she came. She came and sat at the little plastic orange table with the tiny chairs, tiny china, and the imaginary food. And we had a tea party. My grandmother is a Southern Baptist, a staunch Southern Baptist. And she is a good church attender. She has a place in her sanctuary where she sits every Sunday still. It's about five rows from the back, the right-hand side of the sanctuary, the end of the pew. That's her place. But those things about her faith are secondary to me. Her theology, her habits, they don't matter as much to me as her very being, her very disposition, the way that she has encountered me throughout my life. You see, if she were the only person that I ever heard pronounce my name, I would believe that my name, Dinah, means delightful. Because that's the way that she says my name. Delightful. You are my child. You are beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is your name. This is your calling.